So we will start with the first two Wednesdays in January. We'll be where we wrap this series up. Uh, we Next week, for Christmas, there is no service. Uh, there is the Christmas Eve open house at our home. If you're in town, you are more than welcome to come. And then the week after is our special New Year's Eve service here at 7 p.m. And uh, a whole bunch of songs and groups, including one that I'm going to sing. Yeah. And it's an old school country song. If there was ever a song you would anticipate me to sing, that would never be it. Old school country song that I'm going to sing with three other gentlemen, Lord willing. So uh, we'll see what happens. So that's just a teaser to get you to come to. You're like, what? I got to hear this. But uh, so we're looking at Isaiah. As Isaiah is writing to Judah and Jerusalem, they almost have an arrogance about them. They think that because they are the seed of Abraham and God gave them promises and because God continued to offer grace to them, they almost seem like they're fine continuing as is, like, I am a child of Abraham. I am part of the promise, and, and so I'm fine just the way I am. But look what God says to them on, in Isaiah 28, 14. He says, therefore, listen to the message from the Lord, you scoffing rulers in Jerusalem. You boast, we have struck a bargain to cheat death and have made a deal to dodge the grave. The coming destruction can never touch us, for we have built a strong refuge made of lies and deception. You know, one of the greatest deceptions we can fall for is this. I know it's early, and we'll bring the heavy artillery right in the third sentence of this message, all right? But this is one of the greatest deceptions we can fall for, and that is somehow we can think that we can continue in sin and be invincible and untouchable. See, back then they were, they were, oh, we are children of Abraham. We're part of the seed of Abraham, so we're, we have the promise of God. Well, guess what? In the New Testament, what makes you heirs to Abraham's promises? When you baptized into death, when you baptize, you put on Christ, you're heirs to the promises of Abraham. And so, some people, there was a teaching going around about being spiritual Jews. I mean, I guess you could use the terminology, but that's not really what that is. That is just a new covenant, as Brother Foster and the Deeper Waters team have been teaching, that there's this new covenant, and we're baptized into it. So, if we're not careful, all of a sudden, we are now Abraham's seed, and I've taken on the name of Jesus. I'm filled with the Spirit. And because of that, we think we can continue, and not we, just people, we, can, we, can, we have to guard ourselves. That we can continue in sin and we're invincible because we got the Holy Ghost. That's not, that's not what he has for us. It's, and so the Lord knows all. He sees all. Scripture tells us that he's long-suffering and not willing that any should perish. But Scripture says he's also not slack concerning his promises. Judah thought she was religious just because she had religious traditions. Isaiah talks about her religious feasts and practices, but God calls them out when he says in Isaiah 29, and so the Lord says, these people say they're mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote, rote meaning mechanical or habitual repetition of something to be learned. My goodness, I would never want God to step into Refuge Church and say that. 
My people, they, they, they say they're mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is just man-made rules just by habit. That, that if we're not careful, we can go and find our same place on the same pew at the same time, singing the same songs, doing the same stuff, all because we're just used to doing it. And so... I don't want to be like that. I don't want to pray like that, like the Pharisees. I don't want my, my lips to say one thing and have my heart in another place. I, want, I never want to lose the desire that says, God, mold me and shape me into what you want me to be. Look at me and, and love me enough to be patient and keep working with me. And, and somehow just, I've never got to the place where I've arrived. And I'm never going to get there until I hear, well done, that good and faithful servant. So in the meantime, keep molding me. Keep shaping me. Because I don't want to just think, well, I'm a spiritual heir of the promises of the Lord. Baptized in the name. Filled with the Spirit. Matter of fact, I've been in ministry for this long. And then all of a sudden, I just start coming to public assemblies like this. Doing things out of... Of tradition. And Isaiah references, just like the Old Testament, Old Testament prophet Jeremiah did in another place when he said, What sorrow, Isaiah 29 15, what sorrow awaits those who try to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their evil deeds in the dark? The Lord can't see us, they say. He doesn't know what's going on. How foolish can you be? He's the potter. And he's certainly greater than you, the clay. Should the created thing say of the one who made it? He didn't make me. Does a jar ever say, oh, the potter who made me is stupid? Jeremiah talks about the potter and the clay also. And what is sad is that Judah keeps making foolish decisions. And in the 30th chapter, Judah now makes a treaty with Egypt. The book of Isaiah started, the whole book started with them being tempted to make a, a treaty with Assyria. They just don't seem to be learning. It goes from Assyria now to Egypt. And God, the whole message, God just keeps telling them to put their trust in him. Put your trust in me. I got this. You don't have to worry. Put your trust in me. You don't have to fret. I'll take care of it. I understand. Yes, I know the danger. Just put your trust in me. But they keep looking elsewhere. And so God's words will always stand the test of time. Isaiah 30 Verse 8, now go and write down these words. Write them in a book. They will stand until the end of time as a witness. Isn't that amazing that thousands and thousands of years later, we are reading from Isaiah's prophetic words that he wrote down when he obeyed God right here. And God said, put the words down in the book, and they are going to withstand the test of time. And here we are this many years later. Right before Christmas, talking about Isaiah and how it connects to where we are today. Thank God for the Bible. It's timeless. And, but to this day, when the word is preached, there are still people with the same attitude as back in Isaiah's day. Isaiah 30, verse 11, or verse 10. They tell the seers, stop seeing visions. They tell the prophets, don't tell us what is right. Tell us nice things. Tell us lies. A lot of humanity likes that. Forget all this gloom. Get, get off your narrow path. Stop telling us about your Holy One of Israel. After all, they were supposed to be a people of that Holy One of Israel. But they just got sick of hearing Isaiah just doom and gloom and getting up and saying the same things. But God, again, when we say, Lord, when we're talking about the potter and the clay, we're saying, mold me and shape me. 
God isn't always just going to tell us, hey, you did a good job today. Hey, I'm proud of you today. What kind of a parent, there should be a healthy balance. My goodness, I don't want to go to a church that every single time I get there, the pastor, the preacher is getting up going, you didn't do this right. What's wrong with you? Why aren't we doing this? We need to do better. I'd be like, I can't go there. Because occasionally I just need to hear, hey, we're, we're rocking it. Things are going well. But I also think it's dangerous when we come into a church and every message is, God loves you. You love Jesus. I love you. We all love Jesus. Let's, let's grab hands. We're going to close in prayer. God's good. He's, he's just God of overall, and he's God in our life, and he's going to be God tomorrow, and he's going to provide for us. And if we serve him, we're all going to be rich. Praise God. I'm not thinking of anybody specifically right now. Maybe I am. He just snuck in my mom, but I won't use names. But anyway, so, no, there should be a healthy balance of, hey, here's some other. It's just like a parent, right? I, my, my kids better know that when I raise a hand that, that they're not just going like this, that they know that I love them, that I'm going to embrace them. I'm going to say, listen, that was a good throw. I'm going to say, hey. Honey, that, you sounded beautiful on that. You look beautiful. I love, you know what? You are so sweet, honey. When, with the way you handled that. Or, bud, you know what? You need to, you know, and, and there's in, this encouragement. But my kids also, there's also passages that say if I spare the rod, I'll spoil the, spoil the child. And so I have to have this healthy balance of my kids are going to know there's certain things that, when dad says something, dad means it. But they also know that dad's not going to hassle him every single moment of every single day. Well, when we, when we talk about the word here, Jude, he's just, they, they're looking, oh, just stop. I just want to hear good things. Well, if God's the potter and he's trying to mold us and shape us, there's going to be some things he needs to give us that are correction, too. God help us when we won't We'll no longer accept correction. Every one of us, me included, every one of us. Because then, I don't want God to ever look at, it, at me and go, well, he's just not accepting correction anymore. So I'm just going to leave him the way he is. My goodness. Jesus, please, don't ever, don't ever leave me the way I am. The people of Judah didn't want to hear God's words. They were preferred to living in ignorant bliss and disregarding his plan. But God just kept reaching to them in his grace. And he warned them about what the alliance of Egypt and other pagan nations would look like. In verse 17 of 30, he says, one of them will chase. Listen, catch this. One of them will chase a thousand of you. Wait a second. That sounds familiar. Didn't God say something like this? One of them will chase it, and five of them will make you all flee. You're going to be left like a lonely flagpole on a hill or a tattered banner on a distant mountaintop. What a, what, a, what a visual image. But I read that, and I go, wait a minute. I feel like I've read something like this before. And when you go backward to the book of Joshua, be, this is sad because look what Joshua says possibly hundreds of years earlier. Joshua 23, 6. Be careful to follow everything Moses wrote in the book of instruction. Don't deviate from it. 
turning either to the right or to the left. Make sure you don't associate with other people still remaining in the land. Don't even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or serve them or worship them. Rather, cling tightly to the Lord your God as you've done until now. For the Lord has driven out great and powerful nations for you, and no one has yet been able to defeat you. Verse 10, each one of you will put to flight a thousand of the enemy when God, for the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. When God, leave that up there. What did we just read Isaiah tell his people? He says, just one of them is going to put you to flight. But back here, it was totally flip-flopped. When God's fighting our battles, we can't be stopped. When we're clinging tightly to the Lord, no enemy can defeat you. But when you let go of clinging tightly to the Lord and get stuck in the rote, the religious tradition of just doing the same things over and over, absent-minded, and say, I don't want to hear it anymore. I just want the good stuff. And you start trying to make alliances with other things and people, now all of a sudden the tables are turned and you are no longer invincible but you're easily taken down by just one of the enemy. So what's the moral? I never want to stop clinging. I never want to stop trusting. I never want to stop making my decisions based on not who's around me and what the situation is, but I know if I always remain faithful, I can look back and say, there's never been an enemy who has ever been able to take me down. In verse 17, one of them will chase a thousand of you. Five of them will make you all flee. I want God on my side. But even after all these warnings, after his people just continue to disregard his words, they just keep turning to pagan nations. At some point, you'd think they'd go, yeah, man, that's, that's true. But no. But God keeps saying, verse 18, so the Lord must wait for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. That's mercy. That's grace. I just, I can't, I can't fathom, and we have a lot of really good people here tonight, but I can't fathom that any of us would just keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this. No. The only, the only thing we could compare it to is a, is a parent's love for their child. Seen, I've seen parents who keep trying to love wayward children who are making poor decisions. And they're doing it, and they know that oh, it's probably not good, but their heart loves that child. And here God is like, yeah, hey, the Lord's going to wait. Why? Because the Lord is a faithful God. You know, one of the things I say in my prayer time on a regular basis if I was to say to you right now, you get to pick one characteristic, just one about God that you just treasure, you value, what would that be? Think about that. Just that one word value, that one word thing you treasure. You know what it is for me a lot? Faithfulness. God, thank you so much that you are so faithful even when I'm not. 
thankful that he's faithful. Blessed are those who wait for his help. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. He will be gracious if you ask for help. He will surely respond to the sound of your cries. That's almost unreal. You may, if, if you're here, you're watching online, you may have fallen so far from God. You maybe are longing, have been longing to hear his voice for some time. You have been maybe even living in sin. Listen, God, God is waiting for you to come to him. What a passage. He's waiting. He's faithful. He's, he, 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 he wants to hear the sound of your cry. He is faithful to it. He will respond. So no matter where you are, what you've done, how long you've done it, if you cry out to God, I always had this, this little plaque hanging in my room growing up that Jesus is as near as a whispered prayer. But if they didn't respond to this and continued to look to Egypt, that's where we go next. Isaiah 31.1, what sorrow awaits those who look to Egypt for help? Trusting their horses, chariots, charioteers, and depending on the strength of human armies instead of looking to the Lord, the, the Holy One of Israel. I referenced this earlier in, a, in, in an earlier lesson, but thank God for Judah. They finally had a king who did trust God. King Hezekiah steps on the scene. And he was in charge as Assyria once again starts to attack. And look at Isaiah 36, 4. Then the Assyrian king's chief of staff told them to give this message to Hezekiah. This is what the, the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? I want our world to look at us and to ask that exact same question. I want the people we go to school with, work with, live next to, are related to, that when we interact, they, 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 they walk away going, what in the world, what are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you've rebelled against me? On Egypt? If you lean on Egypt, it'll be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is completely unreliable. But perhaps you'll say to me, we're trusting the Lord our God. But isn't he the one who insulted, was, was insulted by Hezekiah? Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars and make everyone in Judah and Jerusalem worship only at the altar here in Jerusalem? So he was right in the fact that you can't trust Egypt. He was right. But he was wrong in the fact, oh, you're going to trust that God? Because Hezekiah tore down pagan God's altars. And when, when this king heard about it, he's like, are you really going to look to the gods? He just tore down all their altars. But what he failed to realize is we tore down the altars of all the pagan shrines and the pagan gods. We've turned to the one true God. And so... He says, I'll tell you what, verse 8, strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find that many men to ride on them. A little underlying dig right there. With your tiny army, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops? Even with the help of Egypt's chariots and charioteers. What's more, do you think we have invaded your land with? You know what I love about this? It's the same stuff that the world is going to do to you today in your walk with God. You might say, what in the world are you talking about do today? I, I, 
I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not fighting any battles. I'm not going to any armies. What are, you, what are you talking about? No, but what the enemy still does is the enemy still tries to get you to question the strength of what you possess. And if the enemy can get you going, yeah, compared to the enemy, man, I don't really, I don't really have a lot going on. Wow. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, some trust in the lights. We can, we can bring those back up. I like seeing their faces. So we can say, hey, you know what? The, 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 the chariots, the, the horses, we can. We doing all right? All right. We can do all this. See, how are you going to achieve your train of thought? I'm doing my best, but woo. So the Assyrian chief of staff tries to use intimidation tactics to, to reach a settlement with, without bloodshed. But what he's trying to get them to do is to question what it is that you possess. What it is that you have in your hands. What it is, in, and when we start going looking at ourselves, going, well, yeah, I don't. Man, look at the enemy. Look at the, I'm outnumbered. I, 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 but, but God never said that you're going to have the strength to do it. God says, if you trust in me, I will take care of it. I will take care of it. And so he wrongly charges Hezekiah. And when this doesn't work, the Assyrian chief of staff tries to make a public accusation about the man of God. In this case, Hezekiah. So he goes on in verse 13, the chief of staff stood and shouted in Hebrew to the people on the wall, listen to the message from the great king of Assyria. This is what the king says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He will never be able to rescue you. He goes from now, look in your own hands what you possess. Now look at the leadership that you, it's always something. He's trying to turn their minds off of God, looking at what they have and leadership. And he's like, oh, look at, look at King Hezekiah. Don't let him fool you into trust in the Lord. The Lord will surely rescue us. The city will never fall into the hands of the Assyrian king. Don't listen to Hezekiah. These are the terms the king Assyria is offering. Make peace with me. Open the gates and come out. Then each of you can continue eating from your own grapevine and fig tree and drinking from your own well. Then I will arrange to take you to another land like this one, a land of grain and new wine and bread and vineyards. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of any other nations ever been saved from the king of, by the king, or from the king of Assyria? Isn't this interesting too? Isn't this the same tactic that the devil uses when Jesus is walking in the wilderness? Oh, listen, just bow down. I'll give you this. I'll give you that. I'll change your life for the better. The world still tells you that. Oh, if you do this, if you try that and go there and let go of this and instead turn to this, man, life is going to be a lot more, a lot better. What happened to the gods of Hamath and Arpad? And what about the gods of Sepharavim? Did any God rescue Samaria from my power? What God of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? What makes you think the Lord can rescue Jerusalem from me? But the people were silent and didn't utter a word because Isaiah had commanded them, do not answer him. When you're in a battle, isn't that what happened in Jericho too? 
walk around the city and just shut your mouth and march. Sometimes God, when, he's, when, when, when the enemy is near and the enemy wants to interact with you, the best thing to do is stay silent and trust God. He claims the Assyrian gods are more powerful than, than their God. This time, they have a king responding to God and trusting God. And it's amazing how much the culture of a place or situation can change when just one person stands for God. You ever been in a conversation where people are just like, yeah, man, it's been tough. I know. Blah, blah. You know, maybe even on the workplace, maybe not even a spiritual thing. Oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's tough. Blah. And then you just got one person that walked up and said, yeah, I know we got a new boss. We got to give her a shot. Give him a shot. You know, things might be good. Things aren't. This, this is actually a really good place to work. People might chuckle, but you know, it kind of shifts the atmosphere. Kind of like when you're like, oh, yeah, I think life's bad. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is. I mean, we could all make a list of today. If we just went back to today, was it a good day or a bad day? We could probably convince ourselves one way or another. But there's something about when, when even one person steps up. You ever been in a prayer meeting where one person just steps up with a word of faith? It just shifts the whole atmosphere. Don't think that you as one person cannot make a difference. I'm telling you what, you can change the course of history. When this happens, here's another trick of the end. The enemy tries to undermine the man of God. The enemy will try to get you to question your leadership. Because the enemy knows if the people do not buy into the leader's vision, then they will jump ship the moment a situation looks dire. Moses, you bring us out here to die? And so here we go. Fast forward. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Man, Hezekiah's going to tell you all this stuff. Ain't going to happen. And God, in this case, the people, they, they trusted Hezekiah's command, commitment to God. But the people were afraid. The king's staff comes and, and tells them about what the Assyrian chief of staff was saying and how would Hezekiah respond to this. 37.1 gives us the answer. When King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes, put on burlap, and went where? To the temple of the Lord. Unlike the kings before him, Hezekiah turned toward God. He got into the presence of the Lord. And God tells Hezekiah that because he prayed, God was going to take care of King Sennacherib and Assyria. This is what he had been promising to do over and over and over again, but no king would take him up on it. There's a difference that takes place when we turn to God instead of people. Isaiah 37, 33, and this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. His armies will not enter Jerusalem. They won't even shoot an arrow at it. They will not march outside its gates with their shields, nor build banks of earths against its walls. The king will return to his own country by the same road on which he came. He will not enter this city, says the Lord. For my own honor and for the sake of my servant David, I will defend the city and protect it. All he was waiting for all along was, if you will just turn to me, I will take care of everything. He just needed the people to turn to him. And here we are all these years later, and he still just needs his people to turn to him. And he will take care of everything. What battle are you fighting right now that you need God to step in and fight for you? 
What fear and anxiety are you facing where you've been losing sleep and wondering, I wonder how it's going to end up. I wonder how it's going to end up. It's time to turn toward God. You might have fear and stress, but do not forget the battle was never yours to begin with. And that's what they missed when it was Assyria and Israel and, and Judah and, and Judah's facing all these things. And, and then they look at Egypt and they, we got to make a, a pact with Egypt because Assyria is coming back and then it's going to be Babylon. Who cares? It doesn't matter what the, the situation is, what the enemy is, what, what the problem is. If you will just trust me, he says, it doesn't matter who the enemy is. It doesn't matter who the situation is. I will take care of it. And he does. But then, as we bring this around to a close here, then Hezekiah makes a dire mistake. After God grants him life when he was supposed to die, Hezekiah lets gar his guard down to an enemy who flatters him with gifts. Isaiah 39, 1 says, Soon after this, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon. Babylon's supposed to be an enemy. Remember in Joshua, he says, don't, don't mess with the pagan nations that are still in the land. Don't worship their gods. Don't even, don't even open that door. Remember that back in Joshua? Well, here we are. Babylon sends Hezekiah his best wishes and a gift. He had heard that Hezekiah had been very sick and he had recovered. Hezekiah was delighted with the Babylonian envoy, envoys and showed them everything in his treasure houses. He showed them the silver, the gold, the spices, the aromatic oils. He also took them to see his armory and showed them everything in his royal treasures, including his armory. There was nothing in his palace or kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. What? What? Who does that? Who does that? I mean, the, the, the Chiefs play the Bears Sunday. I don't care if they're friends with the coaching staff. Andy Reid would not say, well, yeah, hey, man, here's my playbook. Just feel free. Take a look. Sometimes with the Packers offense, I wonder if they did that. But it, no, you don't do that. But a few gifts and, I mean, what happened? The guy was, like, going to the temple of God, Terrorist part of the clothes, puts on the burlap, goes to the house of the Lord, hears from God, trusts in God. God takes care of the battle. I mean, what, what changed along the way there to say the enemy is the enemy and I'm going to stay close to God? And instead, what shifts? And that's why, to me, I have a healthy respect for this story, because this was a king, a man who prayed, a man who heard from God, a man who led. Don't ever think that you're so far along that you can never fall or fail or falter. Paul read these stories, hence the fact he writes things like, uh, take heed lest you fall. 
Does that mean fear your salvation every single day? No. But it means have a healthy respect to know I have got to stay what Joshua wrote, always cling to the Lord. Because when I stop clinging to the Lord, I now have an open hand to grab other things. And so you can preach worship and giving and faithfulness and all these things, but, but, but honestly, every single issue of life, every issue of life always comes back to whether or not we're clinging to God. Every single topic that I will ever preach always comes back to clinging to God. Because if I'm clinging to God, you don't have to tell me to worship. If I'm clinging to God, you don't have to challenge me to pray. Man, I'm, I'm praying. If I'm clinging to God, you don't have to talk to me about lifestyle issues or appearance or dress. You don't have to talk to me about, about anything in service and ministry and giving and being aware of people around me. Like, God, when you're clinging to God, God's going God's gonna to talk to you. He's going to mold and shape your heart because after all, we're the clay, he's the potter. And so, but when we stop clinging to God, when he stops becoming our everything, our all in all, and he just kind of becomes a segment of our life. You know, I go to work and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a fan of this and I'm a fan of that and I go over here and I do this. And then there's God. God's important. He's, he's definitely a pretty large segment of the pie. All of a sudden, I release my grip on clinging to him, and I leave my hands open to grab onto other stuff. When did that happen for Hezekiah? I don't know. I don't know. But at some point, he makes the decision to invite the enemy into not only his home, the courts. He shows him the armory. He shows him the silver, the gold, the spices. He shows him, he gives him a full-on tour, including all of the locked doors of the kingdom. Folks, your enemy wants in your home. And the moment you stop clinging to God, the things you thought you would never do, will make its way into your home. Because the enemy wants nothing more. And you know what? The enemy did not come with a sword. That didn't work last time. This time the enemy comes with a handshake and a gift. And says, I have something for you. Because sometimes we're ready for the battle. But what we're not ready for is to say no to the gift. To the thing that says, yeah, that looks amazing. Yeah, that looks like that'd be a lot of fun. I'd like to participate in that. Wow. Man. That looks like a good movie that just came out. I'm going to bring it into my home. I'm going to 
projected on the screen for me and my children to watch. <laughs> okay, Pastor, whoa. We should take a big jump there, a battle to like a movie. Like, whoa, it's not that big of a deal. I'm certain that Hezekiah said the same thing. When somebody said, Hezekiah, bro, dude, I don't, king, I don't think we want to let him into the armory. I, I don't even know. I'm not even comfortable that he's in our walls right now. It's not a big deal. Come on, guys, follow me. I'm going to show you the next thing. King, king, I'm telling you, this does not make me comfortable. There's something in me that's saying this is not wise. It's not a big deal. After all, look at the gifts he brought. Jesus was wise enough to say, quote scripture, say, get out of my face. You ain't going to tempt the Lord your God. Not every good gift is from Jesus Christ. Not every single thing is meant to be, oh, that's a blessing. I'm a, I told you about this too in relationships. The guy says, oh, she's beautiful. Oh, my goodness. She's a blessing from God. That's awesome. Where is she going to church? She doesn't. So, so you mean to tell me that the God who said don't be unequally yoked sent you a blessing that goes against his word because he wants you to be happy? That's not going to contradict his word. He's not going to contradict his word. But see, Hezekiah, he stops clinging. And he forgot somewhere the enemy wants in your home. And he'll get in there any way that he can. And there's a battle for my home. You better believe that I refuse. I will never open that door and let the enemy in. But we better be aware because there's a whole lot of different avenues in which the enemy tries to get in. In this day and age, that, that I preached that message one time about the snake that bit the man in his own house. We better be careful that we don't fight and war and all this and then we come to our place of refuge when, whew, let the guard down kick the feet up and forget that there's still a battle I know I just feel like God's laying this on my heart heavy Wednesday night I understand but this is a message for the core group of the church to know you better protect your home because the enemy wants nothing more than to get inside your home. And Hezekiah, he just showed him around. Ignored, no doubt, there was someone in that court that said, King, I just don't think this is wise. It's not that big of a deal. And Isaiah comes to Hezekiah with a sad ending. To what was a great story of trust in God. 39.5, 
Isaiah says to Hezekiah, listen to this message from the Lord of heaven's armies. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all of the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now, will be carried off to Babylon. And that's exactly what happened. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's king. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, this message you've given me from the Lord is, is good. For the king was thinking, at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. What type of king? Something shifted in Hezekiah. What type of king got away from, I'm going to look out for the good of the people. We got an enemy king. No, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to stand with God to all of a sudden, hey, yeah, here's the tour. Wait, oh, okay, so in my life, I just told you, your sons are going to be taken, become eunuchs. They're going to be taken into exile. Everything that Judah has is going to be taken. You're going to be destroyed. And the first thing out of your mouth is, "Woo! at least it's good during my life. The only thing I can explain is that man at some point stopped clinging to God. Because he, he started, oh yeah, the gifts, come on, take a tour. And the enemy got to go in his house. And as a result of that, you might still be able to make it to heaven if you let the enemy in your home. But it's doubtful that your children will. Because he says, oh, I'm good, right? Yeah, but your sons are going to be taken into captive by the world. Oh, there's a battle. The enemy is not going to be welcome in my home. I might know better, but you know what? My kids don't. And so it's a mixed message when I say, listen to the preacher. Let's go to church. We don't believe that, but let's sit down and watch it for entertainment. There's a battle. There's a battle for our home. No doubt his own family became slaves and servants. And there are certain things I just, I don't want inside the walls of my home. It's not just for my peace and my security, but it's for my children. So as I close, what kind of security do you have over the walls of your home to make sure that the enemy doesn't come in? You know, today... People will buy the nest and the ring doorbell and the security systems and, and all these things so that somebody knocks. I can see who it was. The spotlights come on. The, somebody calls my phone. An alarm goes off and we invest in it. And that's fine. Keep your family safe. People will purchase their own handguns. They will do whatever your belief is. People will say, you know what? I'm going to do whatever I can to keep my family safe. My goodness, are we going to do all of this and then not even think about the spiritual plan. What are you currently allowing in that has the potential to destroy you? What types of things are being invited in that would like nothing more than to eventually take your children into bondage? I want to set up stronger safeguards than ever before. My children mean far too much to me.
And my own soul means far too much to me. Eternity is on the horizon. And I don't want to mess around. And so you know where it starts? It starts by a people. Yeah, coming to an altar. And clinging. Clinging to the Lord their God. Before you say, well, yeah, I guess that. Maybe I shouldn't do that or watch that or listen to that or go there or do this. Or maybe I should change this before you do any of that. Maybe it's releasing something else and wrapping your arms around the Lord. Saying, God, somewhere along the line, I trusted you. I was filled with your spirit, baptized in your name. I made commitments, consecrations. I've prayed things at altars. And I just... I don't know, somewhere along the line, I just released my grip. And maybe things that I swore I'd never do, I've started doing. I don't know where, but God, I don't want to give the enemy a tour of my home. I'm going to get that mess doorbell and ring doorbell and spotlights and security system and handguns and deadbolts and I'm going to get it all in the spiritual sense because the enemy is not only not coming to my home but he ain't even welcome on my doorstep I don't even want him in my yard don't even walk on my grass you mess up my lines cling to the Lord right now and I'm going to cling to him for my own good but then also for the good of my children I want my children to live in the promises of God there's nothing I'm willing to take a risk that's going to put them into exile to this world into captivity it's not that big of a deal I beg to differ it actually is a huge deal. And that's why Joshua said, as for me and my house, this is the way we're going to do it. And that's all you can do. And so I'm inviting people to come and find a place to cling. Cling to the Lord tonight before you leave.